Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the brilliant and terrifying artist and biohacker, Heather Dewey Hagborn. By feeding into these systems of identification and classification, by allowing ourselves to be broken down into these false categories, it just feeds into this whole larger biopolitical picture that reinforces the systems of power and oppression. Heather, who was a former student of mine, made the headlines when she rendered 3D masks of strangers based on DNA samples she collected on the subways. Her work forces us to think differently and intimately about privacy, surveillance, and identity, what makes us human in a digital age. So I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and they had this stage performer who was a uh, professional lie detector. He's this guy, I think they actually based a a TV series on him, who can look at people and tell whether they're lying or not. And he would, you know, line up 10 people on stage and put 10 objects out there that belong to them. And he'd be able to tell by questioning them which object belonged to whom, even though they were all trying not to, uh, not to give it away. And he could figure out, you know, their, their user IDs and passwords and all sorts of stuff. And I was watching it, and what it made me think was that, well, if he's doing this, if he's somehow reading 
these little subconscious cues and tells that we all give when we're lying, then we're all able to do this. We must on some level know when someone else is lying or not quite telling the truth or hiding some piece of information. Is this yours? No, it's not. But we know it. Their pupils aren't dilated or their blood sugar changed or something about them has has flipped. All the things that this guy, that this performer can identify are things that we must be identifying. Otherwise, why would we have the tells? Why would we be communicating that way? And what it made me think was uh, not really, not not to be paranoid so much as liberated. On, on a certain level, if everybody knows when we're lying, then there's just no point to lie anymore. You know, it almost became an argument against privacy. If everybody knows everything already, then everybody knows. You know, and if everybody knows, then there's nothing to hide. I, I understand that data is a problem and data surveillance is a problem and they know things about us and where we go, who we know and what they can infer from it using big data. But on the other hand, the fact that they know everything may be the reasons why we have gay rights today or transgender laws. It may be the reason why marijuana is becoming legal in so many places because if they know, if everybody knows, if it's all out there now, basically on the record, then we either have to start, you know, persecuting or arresting people for everything or accepting it. In other words, what goes hand in hand with this loss of privacy, it, it demands that we restructure our laws to be congruent with the behaviors that we actually have. Or at least that's the optimistic way of looking at it. Negatively, it could just be, you know, concessions that government is making to uh, make a greater majority of us not fear this uh, state of total surveillance and control. Making matters worse, you know, privacy invasions, they're not just about tracking us or knowing who's smoking pot so they can come and arrest us. It's knowing things about us so they can manipulate us. You know, the the way Facebook works is to use our past activities to figure out which exact psychographic category we're in so they can predict our future behaviors. And they've proven, they've shown how they can use our past behaviors, look, look at how we're clicking on things and what we're clicking on and the rate of change in the way we're clicking to figure out who's going to get the flu, who's going to get divorced, and who's going to go on a diet. And if they know with, and they tend to, with about 80% certainty, they know our future behaviors before we do, then they're going to change your newsfeed and the ads that you're seeing to start marketing to you the future that you have not yet chosen to live. Now, on the one hand, that's just to get those 80% of people who are going to go on a diet next week, let's get them buying this particular diet product. But the other thing they're doing is using our past behavior, using our our uh, supposedly private past behaviors to manipulate us into acting more consistent with our psychographic profile. So if there was a 20% chance that we were going to do something else, that we're part of that other little group that was going to do something other than go on a diet, they want to they reduce that. They want to get from 80% accuracy up to 90 or 100% accuracy. So the real, the real danger of surveillance, 
other than selective enforcement and repression of people and, and political manipulation, is the reduction in who we are, the reduction in human spontaneity. You know, unless maybe we act differently once we're aware of that. Once you start to realize that your Facebook feed, that the internet you see, that the Google results that you get, that the ads and banner ads that you get are not just ads, but they are a reflection of the way this digital network perceives you, of what it's calculated you to be. If the screen becomes a mirror, a reflection of the digital marketplaces, understanding of who you are, and you don't like it, then change what you do so it reacts differently. In other words, it becomes a very good barometer of what they think of you so that you can change it. But gosh, how do you maintain that kind of consciousness? You know, how do you maintain the awareness perpetually that uh, that the internet world and maybe a whole lot of the real world is configuring itself in real time based on marketers and algorithms' understanding of you and their predictions and calculations about what you're going to do. This sort of you know digital Truman show where the margins of visible reality are constructing themselves as you look at them in order to manipulate you. You know, and that's that's when it's time for artists. You know, that's when the intellectuals can no longer serve us. The politicians can no longer serve us. And we need artists who can bring into consciousness that which formerly remains in the liminal states between uh, awareness and camouflage. And that's why I'm delighted that uh, Heather Dewey Hagborg has decided to join Team Human. Heather right now is what's called a transdisciplinary artist, and her work explores the sort of the intersection of of science, technology, and art. Her uh, most famous stuff to date has been the the, and this is probably what you've heard of. She's uh, gone on like on the subways of New York and on the buses and found cigarette butts and gum and snot and stuff, and she brings it back to her lab, looks at the DNA sequence and then models what that person probably looks like. And she creates a, a 3D rendering and ultimately uses 3D printer to create a three-dimensional mask of that person's face and then does an exhibit of all these people's faces, people she's never actually met except through their DNA. So it's both beautiful and, and deeply spooky and very thought-provoking. So here's Heather Dewey Hagborg. This show is largely about, you know, what I'm calling real people doing real things. So, you know, for people who haven't been following your work, I think Stranger Visions, was was that the beginning of the kind of the DNA snooping stuff? Yeah, exactly. Because I, I've been working on surveillance issues for a while, and I've always been a fan of mysteries and forensic uh-huh. shows. And... You know, one day I was just sitting in a therapy session and I was staring at this print on the wall and I noticed this hair stuck in the crack covering of the glass covering the print. 
And suddenly these two things just collided. You know, these two worlds just came together for me. And I realized that I've been spending all this time thinking about electronic communication and electronic privacy and completely forgetting about the body. And so that just propelled me down this course. My approach to art projects has always been to start with a question and then see where it takes me and sort of learn whatever I need to learn along the way to, mm -hmm. to, to make that happen. And so I signed up for a biotech crash course at Genspace, which is a community biology lab in Brooklyn, and just started trying to understand really what DNA as a material could say. And so that was the beginning of this kind of journey into this whole world, really, of, of biological surveillance. And then you started to, what, scrape goop off things in the subway and find <laughs> DNA in it? Right. So I took this crash course, and I sort of went into it with this question of how much can I learn about someone from a hair or a cigarette butt or a bit of chewed up gum or a fingernail? And I came out of the class feeling like, ah, oh, quite a bit. <laughs> There's actually quite a bit I could learn about someone from that. And so then I just started trying to enact this process and trying to see really in, an, in this hands-on way what I could learn. And so I, I became a member of Genspace, and I worked with Ellen Jorgensen and Oliver Medvedek there, who were the scientific advisors. And I just started trying to understand how to extract DNA in a forensic fashion, using literally the same protocols that the, the police do. And one step at a time, trying to make some educated guesses about what kinds of traits the people who's had deposited these samples might have. On the one hand, I was thinking, okay, I want to in some create some kind of visualization of this vulnerability that we have, that we're shedding this genetic information all the time without really giving it a second thought. What you ended up able to do by, by connecting a bunch of dots and filling in some of your own was get to the point where you could take that DNA and then through the computer do some 3D modeling projection of what that person might look like and then print out their face, basically. Right. So what I did was I saw, I saw where this, the research in this field was heading and then I kind of created my own version of it. So I wrote the software. I sort of appropriated a, a morphable 3D model of a face that I found that's actually used for facial recognition I basically looked for any kind of genetic information that might be extrapolated to relate to appearance. So like the most contentious of these things would be what's called ancestry, just sort of a friendly way of calling race basically yeah. or ethnicity. Um, so ancestry is a, is a really big topic, race and ancestry, I would say a really big topic in forensic DNA phenotyping and in kind of like the larger biopolitical scenario. So that's a major one. And that's what most of these kinds of portraits rely heavily on, gender and race, I would say. And then there's these kind of like fun characteristics like freckles and eye color and hair color and things like that that you can look at. Um, and then there's some preliminary information about kind of facial landmarks like nose width and you know, distance between the eyes, kind of s small things like that. So it's basically big data correlation. So we don't necessarily know why this gene makes this or that, but it's statistically probable that you get this kind of quirk 
Exactly. That, there's yeah. absolutely, I mean, there's almost nothing in any of these portraits that has to do with causation where the genetics have actually been figured out. The vast majority of this stuff is, is correlation only. So then, like I saw in the, uh, in the library exhibit and other ones, you end up with these weird, creepy faces of people that you <laughs> may or may not have ever met who showed up on a subway or threw a cigarette somewhere and are now rendered. You know, but maybe accurately, maybe not, but they're there. It's them right. anyway, <laughs> right? So you start doing all that, and then there was a bunch of other fun stuff with, you know, sprays to hide your identity or mask it or confuse people, and, you know, which had various levels of efficacy, I guess, but that wasn't really the point so much as that why not try these things? And now the one that's getting all this crazy attention, I think because it works on so many different levels, is the, the Chelsea Manning portrait. And I mean, how did that, how did that come about? Chelsea knew about your work or did you, how do you even find the email of someone like Chelsea Manning? I mean, how do you start that process? Paper Magazine contacted me in July. They were doing an interview with her and because she is incarcerated in this maximum security military prison, uh, no journalists can visit her in person. No photographer can visit her in person. She can't be seen or photographed, basically. And she hasn't been really seen or photographed since her gender transition, since her sentencing. That's what yeah. it is. It's the sentencing. Uh, they contacted me and said, we're doing this interview with Chelsea Manning, and we really want a portrait to accompany it, but we can't take a picture of her. Would you be interested in doing a DNA portrait? So I think paper had seen Stranger Visions. They asked Chelsea before they asked me if she would be interested. And she had also seen the work, which is interesting. So she'd seen it in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. And she thought it was cool. And so she was totally on board. Uh -huh. <laughs> but she was concerned. Her only concern, I think, was about the gender parameterization of it, which I thought just pointed to such an interesting issue in forensic DNA phenotyping in general, that there is this question of sex and gender and the conflation of these in, in a DNA, you know, in a purely DNA-based portraiture. And next thing I knew, I was getting this FedEx package from Chelsea's lawyer with her hair clippings and cheek swabs mm -hmm. <laughs> and extracting the DNA and, and going through basically the same process I went through with Stranger Visions to create this portrait, um, a 3D rendering. But in this case, I chose not to profile biological sex from the DNA sample. So normally in any kind of forensic DNA work, one of the first things you would look at would be biological sex. So basically I just left that out uh -huh. and uh, created a diptych of two portraits for her, uh, one of which was genderless portrait. So it's sort of an algorithmically neutral portrait. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was assigned female. So that one had the sort of stereotypically female face as, as rendered in this particular 3D model as kind of correlated out of these data sets of, of female faces. Now that you've been doing this work, do you think of humans more as the expression of code or as more weird and unexplained by code? Definitely more unexplained. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's reassuring. I think... Yeah. You know, I went into Stranger Visions with a, with a question. Uh, because we are so uh, bombarded in the media with both linguistic and computational metaphors for biology, 
And it took a while. I mean, it took a bit of research for me to kind of unpack that and get past those metaphors and realize this is this is stuff. Like this is this is different stuff. This is not actually code. That's a metaphor. And it's incredibly difficult to talk about DNA without relying on textual or code-based metaphors. But they're codons. We even call them that. You know, there's so. I mean, it's like it permeates the whole discussion of this stuff. Um, transcription and translation and all of these terms are, you know, messenger RNA completely baked into our textbooks and the ways that we think about these materials. But more and more we're, we're understanding in biology that it's much more complicated than just DNA and that it's not this kind of linear process that goes straight from DNA to proteins. There's a lot more complexity involved. So I think I've come out of it thinking that just every, I feel like almost every day, I feel like it's more complicated. You know, it's more and more complicated than that. I mean, cause, cause the problem for team human in this is if humanity becomes an expression of symbols, you know, whether it's linguistic symbols or these, you know, apparently scientific symbols, then we're disconnected from our power. I mean, there's almost like a Marxist argument to be made in this, that once it's a symbol system, then it's disconnected from ourselves, our experience, our labor, you know, our productivity, what we're actually doing here. And uh, it's it's a kind of slippery slope after that. Right. It becomes a determinism. Right. Right. And whoever controls the language and the symbols then controls reality. And that kind of sucks. Yeah. And that's why it's especially important, I think, to unpack that determinism at the deterministic aspect of it. So... I mean, what I'm really concerned about is that we give so much cultural authority to these substances, um, to this so-called code. So I think the more that we have access to understand sort of how that code is being read from our bodies, what is being read into it, what could be read into it, where interpretation and subjectivity come into play in that process, the better. And that's where I think community spaces like GenSpace are really important. Because once you go into the lab and extract DNA and look at how it's sequenced and look at sort of the messiness of that process and how you're going to look at each of those base pairs and make sure that it's a good call. And then when you actually try to figure out, well, what is, how does that actually get expressed and you see how complex that is, you know, you can't go through that process and then come out of it and say, oh, we're just code. Yeah. There's just no way that can happen. So the more that we're hands on with these materials and understand how meaning is produced through them, the better, I think. Yeah, I got into this long conversation with Barry Sheck once, the DNA lawyer for the yeah. OJ trial. <laughs> and, my dissertation. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And he uh, uh, he's an interesting guy because he said he didn't care so much about OJ and OJ's innocence and guilt and all. What he was concerned about was that DNA evidence was being used in this really non-rigorous way. And that that would bring us into a world where people are getting accused and and sentenced for all sorts of things, and uh, as if um, this whole as if their guilt is somehow authenticated by science when the science was so sloppy. Yeah, it was really bad back then. It's still not great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, um, it's the whole history of DNA profiling and how that got introduced into the court system is really fascinating. And it was a total mess. Now, though, it's basically just seen as this unquestionable gold standard, which mm -hmm. is really problematic. We see DNA as being infallible, but it's not. Yeah, it's not just infallible. It's also 
I mean, and this is what your work does is, is it helps it helps me see that uh, authentication of my identity is not the same as an expression of my identity. You know, we've gotten to this place where to be properly tagged is as if yeah. as if that's everything. Like once you've got my DNA address, you know me, and you don't know me. It's just a marker. It's not the person. Yeah, and it's and there's lots of room there for mistakes and biases. But I think that the stakes are are possibly even higher when we get into the biological and the biotechnological because we're talking about life itself, right? We're talking about these incredibly important ways in which what what on some level and to some extent makes you you is up for grabs. And that's those are really high stakes, I think. Yeah. I mean, and to the to the you know theme of of this show and my life, you know, human beings are stranger, softer, squishier, more a- absurd and quirky than we have the coder language, you know, to describe. And the danger, the danger of surrendering to these definitions, of really to kind of the highly digital, sequenced, discrete understandings of people, yeah. um, ends up making us no better than the machines and systems, you know, that need to control us. Absolutely. I mean, I think that by feeding into these systems of identification and classification, by allowing ourselves to be broken down into these false categories, it just feeds into this whole larger biopolitical picture that reinforces, uh, that reinforces the status quo, basically, that reinforces the systems of power and oppression that are already so present around us. And likely to drive us off a cliff without human intervention. Definitely. <laughs> well, cool. Heather Dewey Hagborg, thanks so much for, uh, for being alive, <laughs> for, for doing talk. what you do, for doing hands-on, hands-on real work in the real world that people can go see, touch, and be, and be changed by. Thank you, Doug. Good to talk. Keep doing it. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining Team Human. If you want us on the radio, let us know. Introduce us to your favorite station manager. Terrestrial radio is the bomb, connecting real people in time and space. There's nothing like it. And I long for Team Human to have a physical and temporal footprint. So let's make that happen. Email us at Stephen, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at teamhuman.fm. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all our listeners who have been emailing, sharing suggestions, and supporting Team Human in the Laboratory for Digital Humanism. Thanks to our friends at Zago for helping get us started. And thanks to Meetup for bringing people together in the real world. Learn more about Meetup at meetup.com. Again, thanks to Pagazi for kindly sharing the song we play in the intro and outro. And thanks to Mike Watt for the music you heard in the middle of today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.